Let's pray. God, you are a jealous God, the Bible says. That we are jealous people. We are protective of the things that we want. And we don't always understand how much it is that you want to be in a relationship with us. So God, help us to hear you, not the the voice of the world. God, help us to, through your Holy Spirit, to open our ears, our minds, our hearts. God, through your Holy Spirit, break down the barriers that we build to protect the things that we want to be true and allow us to hear you, your word, what is true, now and for all eternity. We need you, Lord. We need a miracle of who you are and what you want for us because we live in a world that is working very hard to work against you. So God, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would be here, would be powerfully present, that the words that I share this morning are your words. They're truth from your word. They're not my ideas or what I want people to hear, God, but what is important for you to be, uh, to be saying to the people you've gathered this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in the fourth letter to the fourth church of the seven letters in Revelation. If you've got your Bible and you're following along, we're Revelations 2, 18 to 29 today. The church is Thyatira. Thyatira was a small town. It was the least wealthy, the least impressive, the least important of the seven churches. And yet the letter that is written to them is every bit as important to us in our world today as it was to this little town 2,000 years ago. I read one author And he described Thyatira as a frontier town. It really was just a stop between wherever you were from and wherever you were going. It didn't really have anything of its own to brag about. It was a little wild. It was still being settled. But it wasn't particularly significant with the exception of a couple of exports. It was known mostly for its trade guilds, which we're going to read about in a little bit there They're employee, worker groups, professional groups. Today we might call it something like a union. A group of artisans or employees who banded together for strength and solidarity. They they made sure that the people who were in got all the work and whoever wasn't a part of the guild didn't get any of the work. They were powerful groups of people. They had two purposes for their members. The first was business. If you weren't a part of the trade guild in your business, you didn't get work. And if you did, you got in trouble. The second was social. The, the two primary businesses or exports of Thyatira were dyes and wool. And you know as well as I do how those would go together. The book of Acts tells us that Lydia, who was a wealthy merchant, she, uh, she was a seller of dyes, purple dye and purple fabric specifically. She was wealthy because only the most wealthy people could afford purple because of the incredible effort that went into making that color. The book of Acts also tells us she's the first European convert to Christianity. A cool connecting point to this book and a book in the New Testament that comes before it. So the road through Thyatira was really a thoroughfare. And I was trying to think of the best way to explain it. It's something like this. If you were from the Twin Cities and you had to drive to Sioux Falls and you happened to be going across Highway 23 to make your way west, New London would be a city on the way that unless you had a reason to stop, you would just blow right past it, not even knowing it was there. But if you had business or knew somebody, then suddenly that little village of New London meant something. You maybe stopped and spend a little bit of time. Otherwise... 
Thyatira is just a place on a map from where you lived to where you were going. It was that insignificant. Now, after last week's message, it would be common sense for me to take my foot off the accelerator a little bit today. We're not going to do that. The message in this one is so significant and so important and so much a part of our world today, but it would be easy to miss if we don't get serious and honest about it. These trade guilds, they were really important. They were important for people because for a lot of folks, they were the primary social gathering point that they had throughout the week of the month. The guilds functioned as the center for community for like-minded people in similar professions with similar educations and interests. And so you didn't have people going between professions, bouncing back and forth. They were very, very unique, each one of them. And so as they gathered, which they would do on a regular basis, they typically gathered around a meal first, which is something we still do today, right? You get together and you have some food and then you get about the business that has to be accomplished. And so they'd have their their meal and then they'd do the business that needed to be conducted. And, And it wasn't uncommon for these places to meet in the temples because that was where people were used to gathering. Following the meal and the business, then the night really got going and uh, it was social time. It was the real reason that they went other than excluding everybody else from the business that they were in. It was a highlight of the gathering. And history talks about these things as being very hedonistic, very ungodly events that would include worship of and sacrifice to their various trade idols and trade small g gods. And usually they included a lot of drinking and a variety of immorality and sexual promiscuity. Because it was kind of the attitude is what happens here stays here. But everybody knew what was going on. The primary competition that these guilds had for membership was other guilds, if people happened to be in two professions, and then this growing Christian church movement that seemed to have a problem with what they were all about. See, what they really did was they kind of had their own worship that was little more than an excuse to call promiscuity a religious experience. And these guilds were popular. Revelation 2.18, getting into the text then, Write this letter, this is God speaking, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, Jesus, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. This is the part we said last week where Revelation starts to get a little bit confusing. You have to do a little extra digging and a little bit more work to understand what's being talked about. Eyes like flames of fire. Very simply, here's what it means. Jesus sees everything. Speaking to the people who belonged to these guilds, nothing was secret. They thought that it was, but it wasn't. Jesus sees everything. His vision burns through all of the pretense, all the pride, all of the lies that we hide behind. And he alone sees the full truth of the human heart. We like to think that if we don't talk to him or tell him about stuff, that we can keep things hidden. But that just isn't biblically accurate. Jesus has eyes like flames of fire. He sees our sin. He sees our compromise. He sees our excuses, our lies. He also sees the false teaching when it shows up in the church. He sees those leaders who mislead and misguide and misdirect His people under the guise of sound teaching. Jesus sees our pride and our selfishness and our actions. And then there's the feet like polished bronze. 
Here's the thing. We talked about the armor of God and how God equips us spiritually and scripturally to face the world that we live in and the, and the, the problems that we're going to face. Jesus has something that sounds like it might fit into the armor of God. His feet are like polished bronze. Here's the bottom line. Jesus steps strongly on false teaching. Jesus stomps it out. He crushes false teachers who lead his disciples astray. He alone rules. He alone judges. The only true and trustworthy spokesman for God is him. And in this passage, we're about to meet a false teacher who is leading Jesus' followers and true believers astray. Verse 19, I know all the things you do. This is the the commendation. This is the compliment. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love and your faith, your service and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. He he addresses the true believers in the congregation and he compliments them. He commends them. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, we do these nice things or we do something good for somebody and we want to make sure that everybody knows about it. We want to make sure that they hear the good stuff that we do. There's a thing that's come out since social media has made its rise to the forefront. It's called the humble brag. I did this really great thing, but it really wasn't about me. But just so you know, I did it. We want to make sure in all the stuff that we don't want to brag about that people know we've done good things. Jesus is commending the believers. They're active in their community. They're doing good things in the name of Jesus. And he's making sure that they understand that he's aware of it. They're patient. They continue to grow and improve in the good that they do. They are learning what it means to be a Christian. They are learning what it is to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be a light in the darkness. And in verse 20, but I have this complaint against you. This is the part where we've got to listen. I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. Even in the midst of all the good that they're doing, all that they're doing to make the name of Jesus known in the community, they are being silent and they are tolerating the teaching of this woman named Jezebel. Now, it seems that maybe this is actually her name, which could be. It certainly is addressing a specific person. More than likely, it's using an Old Testament reference to the woman Queen Jezebel, who has throughout Scripture and all the way into our world today, has been the name for a spirit that corrupts and takes people away from God. See, Jezebel was this notorious Old Testament queen, and she was one of the prominent figures on the showdown on Mount Carmel in Kings with Elijah. See, Jezebel employed and fed prophets of Baal and prophets of and prophets of Asherah. She employed these men and women and fed them and kept them in her home, even though they were a part of this idol worship and fertility and sex cults and all kinds of other things that the Canaanites and the Hittites had brought forward all of which are evil, all of which God has made very clear to His people you should have nothing to do with. In the New Testament, she'd be given another title. It would be a wolf. She's a wolf who has entered the church under one pretense, but is actually trying to do something very, very destructive. See, the complaint here is that the people of the church knew of her and her her teaching. Now, I know I got in some hot water with some of you over some comments last week. I'm not going to apologize that because it was the truth that I needed to tell. 
This is a little bit of what happens with yoga is that we tolerate these things that break into the church and we say that they're okay when, when really they're not. That's what this woman was doing. She was leading people astray, saying things are all right. See, her teaching was not only tolerated by the people, it was encouraged. They welcomed her. They gave her a place. She had access to the people and she's leading them away to the false gods and the activities of these guilds, which ended up being little more than cult worship when they got to their social time. She calls herself a prophet, but we know by Jesus' comment, she's not a prophet who speaks for God. That means the only other purpose person that she can possibly be speaking for is the enemy of God. And when we run into things in life that are of a spiritual nature, whatever it's called, you need to be aware that either it is for God and of God and from God and glorifies God, or it is from the enemy of God. And more often than not, you're in the position where you've got to discern and understand the difference of the two between yourself. She is the enemy of God. And the church of Thyatira was allowing her to do these things within the church gathering. What that most likely means is that she was telling people who belong to the church, but also belong to these worker guilds, that their drunken parties and orgies were a good thing, that they were normal. That's what we hear in our country, right? It's normal. No, just because you want to make it normal doesn't mean it's God's normal. See, they, she wanted them to believe that it was something that God approved of, that they could do both. You can go to church and worship with your church family, but you can belong to the guild and do all the stuff that they do there. That was the message that she was trying to preach to them. She told people what they wanted to hear and they listened to her and they gave her a regular audience because it was the message that they wanted to believe. That is the warning for us. Just because we want to hear what's being said doesn't mean that it's coming from God. Verse 21, God said, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. This part is so important. God wants sinners to repent of our sin. God doesn't want us to die in our sin. God wants us to come to him and admit our sin and repent so that we can be forgiven. Jesus says to this church, I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to turn away from her immorality. He gave her time in the midst of her leading people astray to come to her senses and repent, but she refused to. I hear sometimes, too often, I hear people say, Christians hate sinners. I get so angry with that. God doesn't hate sinners. Why in the world would we make it our business to hate sinners? God hates sin. Christians are not called to hate sinners. Christians are called to discern and hate sin. God doesn't hate sinners. God wants sinners to repent. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died before you ever, ever took a moment to believe in Him. When we were still sinners, living in our sins, Jesus died for us, that one day our sins might be forgiven. God loves sinners, and God hates sin. This is where we get into trouble with our politics and in our churches. See, we think sinners are the problem. We make people the problem when the Bible's clear that it's not people. We make people the problem when the problem is sin. When we as Christians buy into the cancel culture that's taken over our country or we become the tolerance police that everything has to be okay because it's what people want to be okay, when we start supporting lies, uh, laws 
to legalize what God has called sinful because we want everyone to feel good about themselves. What we've done is taken away the truth of what is sin and we've removed a person's opportunity to confess and ask for forgiveness. When we and when we in churches and churches are doing this, when we say it's not sin anymore, what that means is that there's no chance that person is ever going to be forgiven because they're never going to ask for forgiveness because they're being told nothing's wrong. That's what Jezebel is doing. Calling sin what it is doesn't mean that we hate people. It means that we believe in God and we love people and we want people to have a chance for repentance and forgiveness like what we've experienced. When the church is more worried about making people happy than about standing on God's truth, we've ceased to be the bride of Christ and we have really become no better than these guilds that are written about in this book of Revelation that Jezebel is trying to draw people out of the church and into the guild saying, you can be Christians and you can celebrate your sin at the same time. Well, that might sound really good. It might even for a while feel really good. But you know what? Anybody who's ever taken the Bible seriously for a moment knows that can't possibly be true. Verse 22, Therefore, Jesus says, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. If you decide you want to be a part of the church, but you're still going to be a part of the culture of the trade guilds and their social time, then there's going to be a problem. There's going to be suffering. See, there's a price to pay for unconfessed sin, and God is the one who sets that price and punishment, not people. Jesus is saying Jezebel will pay for her unconfessed sin, and those who follow her are going to suffer unless they repent. Once again, God is still giving us a chance to repent of our sin. But we have to acknowledge it, we have to admit it and own it, and then we have to confess it. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Well, we know in the Bible that all of us deserve death for our sins. That's what we deserve, and yet by the grace of God, because of Jesus, we have a chance for our sins to be forgiven and to be living in eternity with Jesus. So you got serious about those people that lead people astray with their false teaching and lies. God wants us in a right relationship with Him. Verse 24, and then He says, But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira. This is the folks even outside the church who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually, I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. You don't have to do anything else out there but not give up the truth that you've been taught. That's pretty simple. That phrase, deeper truths, is what nearly every religion, every cult that wants to ride the coattails of Christianity claims. Almost every one of them claims to have a deeper truth. I couldn't come up with one that didn't. See, they have this additional teaching, a new revelation of Jesus or from Jesus or secret information that the rest of the world religions don't have. And I'll tell you what, when that's being said or they say this is the only true church, that's a sure sign that Satan is in the works trying to separate people from each other and from God. To use Christian language doesn't make you Christian. 
See, God tells us very clearly that we're not to add or take anything away from Scripture. And yet this Jezebel was telling people, well, you can have it all. You can do whatever you want and still go to church and feel good about being a Christian. God's Word is complete and sufficient. There's no religion that's ever been able to add to the Bible, and that's coming from God because God Himself says we're not to add or take anything away from it. Verse 26, to all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end. What are we called to do as Christians? To obey the commands of Jesus. For all who hold fast to the simple truths of Scripture and don't let go of them. He says, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority that I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. That's an interesting one, the morning star, because that phrase shows up in the Old Testament once too. Very significantly different meaning, though. Revelation 22.16 calls Jesus the bright morning star. In this passage, he said, I will also give them the morning star. We will get and receive the gift of Jesus. But Isaiah as he's talking about Satan's fall from heaven, refers to him as the morning star. Satan is referred to as a prowling lion, and Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. That doesn't mean that Jesus and Satan are the same because similar words are used to describe them. We've got to be clear about that. And I've heard really bad teaching on that one. But if we understand it clearly, Jesus is the bright morning star. Jesus is the one that brings light to a world living in darkness. One lion, the lion that is Satan, is seeking to devour people. Jesus is the lion who saves people. See, Satan can only present himself as a poor imitation of Jesus. Satan can only tempt us with an imitation of what we think heaven is going to be like. Because he's a, he's a fake, he's a fraud, he's a trickster, and he's a liar. This Jezebel is luring people away with the imitation of godly community. Come on, people are going to be just like you. They're going to love you. Come on and be a part of this. It's so much fun. It's way better than church. Still today, people talk about how they can worship and follow Jesus outside of Christian community. They say they don't need church. That it's to say that you don't need church and that you can be a strong, healthy, growing Christian outside of church community is another deception of the enemy. Because what the enemy wants to do is to separate people from God. And then he can go all the way back to what happened in Genesis. And with just a subtle twist of the words, we can get, he can get us to doubt what God has actually said. Hebrews 10.25, today more than ever coming out of the pandemic is so clear and so important that we're not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as, as you see the day drawing near. Why is that so important? You maybe don't think that you need a church family until you hit the day that you don't have anything else. You maybe think, I don't, I don't need to go to church, I'm learning enough on my own, until you actually come to church that day and you hear something and there's a word in the song and God's Spirit works in you and you go, wow, i got to deal with that because that's a problem. Maybe, maybe for you it's somebody in the church needs whatever it is that you bring. Someone in the community of believers that we call the Bride of Christ has a need that you alone can uniquely address and help make their life better or easier or move it forward one more step. See, we need this community. We need to meet together. So as you can imagine, 
after last week, if you heard that message, I got my bell rung pretty good because I dared to say yoga is not Christian. Never has been, never would be. I knew it was going to happen, but I knew I had to say it. P.S., by the way, Oprah loves yoga. Period. Mic drop. That alone should tell you something. It's like so many other things, though. It's nothing more than an imitation that the enemy uses to lure people away from Jesus. To fill us with something we think must be all that there is when there's so much more. Because the enemy is a liar. He's a fake. He's an imposter. The question that I've learned to ask people, whether it's yoga or any one of the million other things that we follow and and turn into a small g god or an idol in our world, I ask them this. Think about the time, the energy, the effort, and the money that you dedicate to supporting whatever that thing is. Compare that to the time and the money and the energy that you use to support your local church and your relationship with God. Which is getting more? Which one gets the best of you? See, that's your treasure. That's the one that you really want. What Jezebel did was she went to these people and said, yeah, this church thing is great, but how are you going to do your job? How are you going to live without this group out here? And she got them to step from one to the other. And the key is to understand what we really value and treasure. And for that, we have to be honest. I can't do that for you, but maybe I can help you think about it. Matthew 6.21 says, "Where, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we treasure... We defend. What we treasure, we support. What we treasure, we invest our time and money in. Do you defend your favorite politicians and political party? Then there's your earthly treasure. You defend your favorite football team? There's your earthly treasure. God has such a great sense of humor. He has blessed me with one son-in-law who's a Vikings fan and one son-in-law who's a Packers fan. The basement of their house is all Packers. I've even bought him Packers stuff. You know why? Because I love Michael way more than I love the Vikings. There's nothing for me to defend there. There's nothing at all. It's all about him. See, Michael. Michael's my treasure. Jordan, the Vikings fan son-in-law, he's my treasure. See, whatever it is that you defend, whether it's yoga or other non-Christian spiritual practices or stuff that you know, you know you're struggling with as an idol in your life. That's what you defend and that's your treasure. Now, you might not like the message. Maybe you want to defend Biden or Trump again or Pelosi or Pence or yoga. But understand this, that what you defend, you treasure That's not me telling you. That's just life. That's reality. Maybe for you, you defend healing crystals and chakras and Reiki. I don't know. If you do, that's your treasure. And that's where you've got to spend some time with God and say, God, you know what? I appreciate everything you've done for me. I appreciate what you did for me in Jesus. But this is the stuff that really matters. This is the stuff that's working for me. Then at least be honest. God says, be be hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. What are you going to defend? Where's your treasure? Are you going to be honest about it? Last verse. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He's saying to the churches. This is the part where you and I have to hear the Spirit of God. Not my voice. 
not what you want, but the Spirit of God and be willing to understand and accept what the Spirit is saying is truth, what God's Word is saying is truth, even if it isn't what you want to hear or what you want to believe, even if it isn't what you've chosen to defend, at the very least, you need to recognize that the thing that you're putting your flag on that piece of ground is not ground that God has called His. Will you hear? Will you accept the truth? Will will you repent? If you need to, see, God sends His Holy Spirit to us to point out the things that are not right in us. Those areas of sin, the things that we need to repent of, are you willing to accept that truth? Will you listen to the Spirit? See, the Bible says, anyone with ears, now is the time to listen to the Spirit. But nobody else can do that for you. You have to do that for yourself. You have to decide what you're going to believe, what you're going to defend, and ultimately what you're going to worship. Because the answer to those things will define and decide where it is that you spend your eternity. Let's pray. God, please forgive our pride. Forgive our selfishness. Forgive our stubbornness. Forgive us for loving the things of this world and defending them more than we love You. God, forgive us for trying to make something not so bad or something that we really, really love, making excuses for why You must be okay with it because it's so important to us. You talk about idols and small g gods and how we need to stay away from them, God, because that's what we do. We make idols and gods of so many things. God, in the power of your Holy Spirit, work with each and every one of us and help us to see and to hear your truth. Your word says now is the time to hear the word of the Spirit. God, help us to be people who will listen, who will hear, who will accept, And then we'll do whatever it is you're calling us to do in order to bring us back to you. And maybe, God, that's time to repent. That can only come from you. That can only come from your Holy Spirit, God. And what a blessing it is when we hear you and we're moved to action. In Jesus' name, amen. The world has the message that it wants you to believe is that you can have it all. God's message is that he is our all in all. The difference between who you are and the person that you want to be is the choices that you make and whether or not you choose to be obedient to God's will for your life. It boils down so simply. These letters to the churches of Revelation speak to us today every bit as much as they spoke to those churches 2,000 years ago. God loves you. He sent Jesus who gave his life for you that your sins might be forgiven. But in order to do that, we have to first acknowledge and admit and repent. And then God forgives us. And the awesome thing is that what's waiting for us is an eternity in heaven. And that's something to give thanks for.